Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchVT.com. Our passage for our sermon today comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, and it says this. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can have a seat. Oh, man, I said it, didn't I? Shoot. All right, for those who are new, I, I have a problem, and, uh, and, and I, apparently there's no cure. Um, every time I come up to the pulpit, I, I say, all right. And uh, not, not Matthew McConaughey style, so settle down. But, uh, but I can't not say it. Last week was like the first week, and, and I don't know how long that I hadn't said it. But, uh, but anyway, uh, my name is Michael Badger. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer Church, and uh, I, I really cannot thank you guys enough for being here with us this morning. I'm, I'm so thrilled that you are here, and, uh, and, and what a, just a powerful time of prayer this morning. And, you know, I just echo Katie's sentiments of, of thanking you all for, for praying for our kids, praying for our parents. Um, there's, uh, there's, there's so much... Uh, of this world that wants to just attack us and attack our children. And so thank you so much for praying for that. But uh, as you can see from uh, the slide up there, we are uh, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, so we, we finished Ruth a few weeks ago, and now we're into the book of Hebrews. Um, we are, we're, we're going at a breakneck pace, as you can see, already on verse 6. Uh, and uh, so I know you're wanting me to slow down, but... Uh, uh, but Last week, we talked about how the first chapter of the book of Hebrews really has one main purpose. And the main purpose of the very first chapter of Hebrews is to magnify the name of Jesus. That's, that's what the author of Hebrews wants to do. He wants to make Jesus as high as he can possibly be. Uh, he wants to elevate his name. And so he, he starts uh, launching into this, this Christology, you could call it, this, this teaching of Jesus and, and who he is, uh, how, he is uh, how he is the creator king, how he's the better prophet, how he's the, he's the greater priest, and all of, these, all of these different kinds of things. And then he spends the rest of the book, the rest of the chapter rather, talking about how Jesus is higher than the angels. How he is greater than the angels. Now this kind of seems like, why would you, of all things, why would you spend that much time, an entire, uh, an entire half of a chapter, just talking about how Jesus is higher than the angels? And the reason is, in the first century church, there was a thing going on with Judaism. With Judaism. And they had this, this, this problem of venerating or worshiping angels. They, they thought that they were, uh, and, and they're right to a certain degree, that, that the angels were very important in the Old Testament. And they were very important in the Old Testament. God used them in, in many different ways. But the first century Jews saw that and they believed that because they were important in the Old Testament, that they should go to these angels as a mediator between them and God. Right? 
And so that was a, a big issue. And so that is one of the reasons why the book of Hebrews spends the half of the first chapter talking about how Jesus is above and uh, higher than the angels. But first century Judaism is not the only time and demographic of people who had a misunderstanding of angels. I did a search of the three most popular secular books on angels. Uh, just a, a quick search, and, uh, and here is what I found. The first book that I found was called Spirit Guides. The little subtitle was called Connecting with Our Guardian Angels, Cosmic Helpers, and Archangels for Spiritual Protection and Guidance. And uh, the next one, I think is probably my favorite title, is says Connecting with Angels Made Easy. So <laughs> it's, not, it's not as hard as you think it is. It says, how to see, hear, and feel your angel. And then the next one, because of course you need one called this, it's called Angels 101. <laughs> An intro with connecting, working, and healing with angels. Now as you can see, there is a massive misunderstanding of the role and of the place of angels within the spiritual hierarchy within our culture. And there's a, a lack of biblical knowledge when it comes to what angels actually are. And when we see this, we, we, we may think, well, that, that of course isn't in the church. That's just in these New Age religions and, and things like that. Uh, but, but that's not quite true because there are many people within churches all over the world who have very similar beliefs about angels. Very, very similar to those that are within these New Age religions. And, and it just, just a very easy example of this. Who here in this room has heard of the show called Touched by an Angel? Yeah, a lot of people. Yeah. This was actually one of my family's favorite shows growing up. We, we loved Touched by an Angel. But friends, if you want to know what angels are not like, if you want to have a, a bad understanding of angels, just watch Touched by an Angel. That's all you need. That show will give you a pop understanding, a popular understanding, how many within the church, because who watched Touched by an Angel? A lot of people within the church watched and loved Touched by an Angel. But it will give you a pop understanding of how many people in the church believe angels to act and function. Now the author of Hebrews, in his desire in this first chapter to elevate and magnify Jesus, wants to make absolutely clear Abundantly clear, Jesus' superiority over the angels. He does not want to make, have you make that mistake. He wants to make it clear that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who we should be worshiping and who we should be seeking out. Now, another often misunderstood category within biblical study is called numerology. That's a fun one to say. Numerology. And that is essentially saying that numbers within the Bible are important. And they can often signify certain things. They can, they can act as symbols of, of certain spiritual realities. Now, we as human beings have a really bad habit of taking things within Scripture sometimes a little too far, right? Such as angels, like we just talked about. But this also applies to numerology. I've heard countless conspiracy theories told to me by people who have a very surface level understanding of numerology within Scripture. People who believe that they know for, for a fact 
that certain past presidents or current presidents or, or other political leaders are the Antichrist because if you assign certain numbers to the letters of their name and then you add to, subtract four, multiply six, and then their name will equal 666. And we all know what that means, right? Not only that, but I've heard people use numerology to predict when Jesus is coming back. They've been wrong every time, by the way. And so while numerology can be very much abused and very much misunderstood, we have to deal with the fact that it is still used within Scripture, right? It's, it's there. We know it's there. But we must be wise and discerning and not conspiratorial when seeing how Scripture actually uses it. And here in our passage, in Hebrews 1, verses 5 through 14, the author uses seven references seven references to the Old Testament to make his case as to why Jesus is superior to the angels. And of course, the number seven is very important within Scripture. Right? It's really important. It's the number associated with fullness or completion. An obvious example of this is the creation account, right? How many, how many days was the creation account? Seven. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing in using seven citations from the Old Testament is showing us that the Old Testament perfectly points to Christ Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of everything found within it. Jesus himself actually says this in Luke 24, 44, when Jesus taught the, the forlorn disciples on the Emmaus road that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and, and not just the prophets, as we're going to see, and then as Jesus says, not just, the, not just the law of Moses and not just the prophets, but also the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus is saying that all of it, all of it is about me. Remember what we said last week, the Old Testament is not just this, this disjointed, disconnected old book of the Bible that we don't have to worry about, or old books of the Bible, I should say, that we should have to worry about. It all points to Jesus. All of it does. And so the authors of, author of Hebrews is highlighting this truth and helping us to understand that when we read the Old Testament, we are to read it through Christ-tinted lenses. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at the first three of these Old Testament references and how the author of Hebrews uses them to show us the place of honor above the angels in which Jesus resides. But before we dive into that, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you so much for the wonderful opportunity to be able to, to be gathered here together as brothers and sisters in Christ Lord, we've said this so many times, but there are so many places around the world who don't have this opportunity. And so let us, Lord, let us just enjoy it. But Lord, I also pray, God, that uh, this morning, Lord, that as, as we're diving into your word, you don't, you don't allow us to be distracted by, by things of this world. Don't allow us to be distracted by our busy schedules or, or what we're going to have for lunch or, or anything like that, God. But help us, help us be focused on you and your word. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit is the one guiding us this morning. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit just illumines the truth of your, of your word to our minds. And I pray that your Spirit just... God just hides these things deep. 
I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. All right. Well, before we, we really go much further, one misconception about the very, very early church is that they did not have a Bible like the one that you and I have now. Now, there is a, actually a kernel of truth to that. We have the great privilege of, of having the canon of the, the Old Testament and the canon of the New Testament. It's kind of bound neatly together in a Bible you know, like this. It has a table of contents in the front. It's got an awesome concordance in the back. It's got all these wonderful things. It even has chapter divisions and, and uh, verse numbers, which actually weren't added until around 1551, by the way. But to say that they did not have scriptures, that the ancient church, that they did not have scriptures that they used is actually not quite accurate. While their scriptures did not look like our modern Bibles, nicely bound and all of that kind of stuff, their Bible was primarily what was called the Septuagint. The Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it was preached from in the first century churches. It was studied. And it was widely known in the early Christian church. They knew it very well. Now, the Septuagint was not perfect. It's like how all modern translations are not perfect. There are some phrasings of certain words that kind of differ slightly from the original Hebrew scriptures. But that did not affect any core doctrine or theology. Now, I tell you all of this because if you look at the various quotations of the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews and you, and you do the work of the cross-referencing, you might notice that the wording in Hebrews does not quite match up with what you might have in your Old Testaments. Some of the wording might be different. And the reason is simply that the author of Hebrews quotes the Septuagint when he's doing all of his quoting within the book. But your Old Testament was not translated using the Greek Septuagint. It was translated from the original, well, maybe not original, but from, from the Hebrew manuscripts. And so when you look at the quotations in the book of Hebrews and you, and you flip back to say, to say the Psalms, you might see that some of the phraseology is just a little bit different, and that's, and that's why. But regarding content or the integrity of the meaning, nothing has changed. And so don't be concerned when you see that and you're wondering why it doesn't quite match up. Also, you may either find this interesting or, or not interesting in the slightest, uh, but the use of the Septuagint in the book of Hebrews is also one of the reasons why some people don't believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Because any time that, that Paul, in, in one of his letters, uh, quoted from the Old Testament, he always quoted from the Hebrew text, not, not the Septuagint. So that's one, one strike against Paul for maybe, maybe why he didn't write the book of Hebrews. But uh, that might be boring to you, that might be interesting to you. I think it's kind of cool. But. All right. <clears throat> well, let's actually dive into the text itself. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them up to Hebrews chapter 1 and read with me verse 4 of our passage. And I know we looked at that last week, but we want the full, a uh, little bit more context for our stuff this week. So uh, read with me verse 4 of our passage. It says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And what makes Jesus superior to the angels rests in the name that he has inherited. That is the author's proposition. That's what he's saying. That's, that's, how he is, that's what he's basing his case on. And so the obvious question is, what is that name? 
Well, the author really helps us out here in verse 5, and he tells us, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so the name that Jesus inherited, that is higher than the angels, is the name of son. And the author here in verse 5 uses two Old Testament references to kind of build his argument that Jesus is the Son of God. And the first one is Psalm 2, and the second one is 2 Samuel 7, 14. So Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. Now friends, this, this passage is, to be quite honest with you, it's a highway to a lot of headaches and even more heresies. And the reason is because as you read it, there are certain questions that inevitably pop up into your mind, such as if, if Jesus, the Son, was begotten, doesn't that mean He was created? Or if the Father is saying that, that He will be like a Father and Jesus will be like a Son, or if Jesus inherited the name of Son, was there a time where this relationship between the two didn't exist? Maybe a time when Jesus was not the Son. I'm not saying those questions are right, but, but do you see how these type of questions can crop up in someone's mind, right? Well, to fully understand what is being said about Jesus, we need to take a closer look at these Old Testament references. But we also, at the same time, must remember that the author of Hebrews is not simply pulling these verses out of a vacuum in the Old Testament. But these verses that he's quoting from are set within a very specific context. And so I want us to look at the first reference being used here, Psalm 2, verse 7. That's the specific reference. But I want us to back up all the way to verse 1 in Psalm 2 so that we can see it in its full context. And I think we have it up on the slide here. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then verse 7, where the citation in Hebrews comes from. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so the context of this psalm is of international rebellion against God and his anointed. And his anointed is a clear reference to the Messiah. But the kings of the world are, are coming together to, uh, in this grand conspiracy, break from the rule of God and the anointed so that they can just govern themselves in, in how, whatever way that they see fit. But what is, what is the response of the Lord in this passage to that, to that conspiracy, to those nations plotting against them? What is the Lord's response? He laughs. He laughs at it. Isn't that great? I think that's so funny. He laughs at the plots of earthly kings. In, in his eyes, they're, they're, they're simply like playground bullies, thinking that they can rule the yard because they happen to be on top of the jungle gym. That's, that's how God sees them. And he laughs at it. He laughs at it. And the Lord speaks to them in his wrath, saying that he has set his king. 
He has set his king. And notice that this is an appointed king, referring back to the anointed one. He has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. This is a statement of victory. This is a statement of absolute authority. When the anointed one is named king, he will be seated high on the Lord's holy hill, a place of triumph, a place of victory over all other kings. But it is after this enthronement. Notice that it's after this enthronement of the anointed one as king that the Lord then says, you are my son. And does he say, I have begotten you? No. He says, today I have begotten you. And this is interesting because it wasn't at the birth of the anointed one that he became begotten as the Lord's son. It is today, referencing the day of enthronement, of victory, that the Lord begot the Son. And so the author of Hebrews wants us to see Psalm 2 and everything that we just read as prophesying Jesus, right? And if you look at the life of Jesus and you look at this psalm, you you can kind of begin to see the parallels kind of form up. Right? The nations raged against God. Every people group, every king wanted to do what is right in their own eyes since the fall. They wanted to break the cords of, of moral responsibility for their sins. And the, the people during the days of Jesus did what against him? They plotted against Jesus. The anointed one, the Messiah that had finally come. And on the cross, the enemies of God... They, they what? They, they thought they won, right? They thought they won. And not just the earthly enemies of God, but the spiritual enemies of God as well. They, they finally killed him. They did it. They got him. Now all of his preaching about, about hell, about repentance and faith would finally cease. They got him. But friends, what happened three days after that bloody cross? He rose again, Right? And at his resurrection, he demonstrated his absolute and complete victory over all of his enemies. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated the rulers of the world who thought they had rid themselves of him. And he defeated Satan and his demons. And like the anointed one of Psalm 2, after the resurrection... Jesus was set in the high places at the Father's right hand. He was given all authority over creation as king. We saw that in verse 2 of Hebrews. And so in keeping with the rhythm of Psalm 2, it is in the resurrection and in the heavenly coronation of King Jesus that the Father says, You are my son. Today, on the day of your enthronement, I have begotten you. And Paul amplifies this in Romans 1, verse 4, writing that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by what? His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. This passage in Romans 1, 4 also clears up for us what is meant by the word begotten in our passage in Hebrews and in Psalms 2. So when we see this word begotten, 
we should understand it as declaring or manifesting to the fullness. Not, not quite creation. So when the Father declared at the resurrection of Jesus, today I have begotten you, what he is really saying is that now, Jesus, you have come into the fullness of the role of Son, which includes your victory and it includes your inheritance that is rightfully yours. Now this idea of inheritance that you see in the previous verses of Hebrews as well, this idea of inheritance is key to the point of these verses. Because remember, in verse 4, we are told the name of Son was a name that Jesus inherited. Now, usually when we think of someone inheriting riches or the name of their family, it has nothing to do really with the quality of the person who is inheriting all of that, right? Like their character. It doesn't usually have anything to do with that. In fact, the person inheriting the riches or inheriting the name of their family, for all intents and purposes, may be a useless human being, right? Who, who lacks any of the qualities that allowed their family or the previous generations to amass the fortune to begin with. And so to be an heir simply means that you were just born within advantageous uh, positions or an advantageous uh, situation and that there is nothing that you really have to do in order to earn your inheritance. That's kind of how it works now. But that was not the way it was seen in Scripture, nor in the ancient world in which the original readers of this letter lived. In, in Roman society, when a son came of age, and if he was approved, if he was approved as a man by his father, he would, buy, he would be ceremonially received and bestowed with his name. He had to earn it. And so it was with Christ's resurrection, or in Christ's resurrection. By raising him from the dead, God gave final approval to Jesus, who had perfectly fulfilled the law and obediently endured the cross, and then the Father bestowed on him the name of Son of God. Furthermore, in the ancient world, sons inevitably entered into their father's occupation and business. Again, you can use Jesus as an example of that. Jesus was a carpenter because his father was a carpenter. His earthly father, I should say. But today, very few of us follow in our father's footsteps. But back then, this is what it meant to be a son. To be accepted and approved as son meant all of these things. It meant approval, it meant your inheritance, and the fitness to take up the business of the Father. Now it's important for us to recognize that Jesus always, from all eternity, has been the Son of God. It's easy to, to kind of read this passage and, and, and think that, that that relationship wasn't always there. But it's really important for us to recognize that from all eternity... Jesus has been the Son of God and has lived in that relationship to the Father. And this is clear simply by noting that God the Father called Jesus Son multiple times in the Gospel before the resurrection, right? Such as at His baptism and at the transfiguration. He was called Son even before the resurrection. 
But by means of the resurrection, God the Father declared that Jesus Christ and He alone is the worthy heir and the true Son of God. Now the second citation in verse 5, which comes from 2 Samuel 7.14, serves to kind of augment the point made by Psalm 2, or kind of to, to strengthen it. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now this was originally spoken by the prophet Nathan as God's response to King David's godly desire to build a temple for the Lord. And in this famous passage, God promised David that he would always have an heir and that his son would build God's house. As with many Old Testament prophecies, this, this actually had a, had, a, had a near and then an ultimate fulfillment. It had a near fulfillment and then an ultimate fulfillment. And so on the one hand, this applied to Solomon, David's son, who built the temple and who, whom God treated with fatherly affection. And so we see that, that near fulfillment in Solomon. But there were things said of this son in 2 Samuel 7 that could not be true of any merely human descendant of David. It couldn't be true of Solomon. Especially the statement in verse 13 that says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. An earthly king could not be on a throne forever. Solomon was not on the throne forever. Because he would be, he, he was human. He was completely human. Right? But this statement actually connects the prophecy forward to David's greater son, to Jesus Christ, of whom God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And this is simply to highlight the type of love and role relationship between these two persons of the Godhead. <clears throat> so, just to sum it all up again, he has always been the Son of God, just as He has always been the heir of all things. But when He had made the purification for sins and He triumphed over death and Satan, Christ was declared Son of God and heir of all things on a new basis and in a new way. Now He reigns as the God-man Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not only by His eternal right, but now by the right of His victory over sin and death. He is Son of God in manifest power by His resurrection. Now, the point of all of this, the point of this, of this one particular verse that we spent so much time in, the point to verse 5, like the beginning of the verse says, is, is to which of the angels did God ever say these things to? To which of the angels did He declare to be His only unique Son? Which of the angels has he said that he will be to him as a father and to me a son? And the answer to that is none of them. He didn't say that to any of the angels. The name in which was given to Christ Jesus, the Son of God, and the relationship that he shares with the Father was given to none of the angels. And so therefore, Jesus is superior. Right? He has a name that is far above all other names. And in that name alone, and not in the name of Gabriel, not in the name of Michael, not in the name of any of the cherubim or the seraphim or, or any other angel in heaven, does our help or our salvation come from. Right? 
And so, friends, if, if, if you have a desire to speak with God, if you have a desire for, for healing or salvation or, or any of these things, you don't have to go to a mediator. There's only one name that you have to go to, and that is Jesus Christ. That's it. Now, the author gives the next argument an Old Testament citation as to why Jesus is superior to the angels in verse 6. He says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Essentially, the basis of the argument is that Christ is superior because the angels are commanded to worship him. It's a pretty, pretty simple one there. And to prove this, the author quotes from, from either Psalm 97.7 or Deuteronomy 32.43. I think I may have put the psalm uh, quotation on there. But both of these passages have that same line, so it could be either one. <clears throat> but here is actually, if you, if you do the cross-referencing in your, in your Bibles, just to make you aware. Here's one of the instances where the Septuagint differs from what you will see in your own Bible. In your Bibles, when you go to Psalm 97.7, you will see, instead of angels there, you'll see the word gods, little g. But the translators of the Septuagint saw, saw this word uh, and thought of gods as spiritual beings, specifically angels. Uh, but don't let that throw you off. It doesn't change the truthfulness of this uh, passage. It doesn't, doesn't change the, uh, the significance of, of what the author of Hebrews is saying. So just... Kind of laying all the cards on the table there so you guys know, just in case you saw that and were confused later on. Now, <clears throat> I also don't want you to let the author's first words in this verse, in verse 6, throw you off either. When it says, when he brings the firstborn into the world. Now what's going on here is most likely uh, referring to the first coming of Jesus and his first advent, becoming, uh, beginning with the virgin birth. That's probably what's being uh, mentioned here because uh, the most spectacular, perhaps the most spectacular part of that very first Christmas was the choir of angels that came and did what? Worship. Worship. They sang the praises of Jesus, right? So I think that's what he's referring to here. And not only did the angels worship Jesus uh, at his, uh, at his uh, human birth, at the first advent, but the angels also rejoiced and worshipped at the opening of the tomb, and then again at Jesus' ascension into heaven. And then if you flip forward a few, uh, few books, the book of Revelation also reveals that the angels forever worship the Son, who is both lion and lamb, as he sits upon the throne. See that in Revelation 5. In addition to that, when you first, uh, or sorry, rather, when you see firstborn, do not think the Bible is saying that Jesus was in his divinity born. Okay? We kind of already talked about that, but don't think that that's what this is saying. It does not mean that Jesus is first among creatures as, as taught in Mormonism, for example, but rather that he is exalted above the creatures. The idea, again, is that of inheritance and unique dignity. The theologian F.F. F. Bruce explains by saying, He is called firstborn because he exists before all creation and because all creation is his heritage, is his inheritance. It belongs to him. Just like the inheritance of a, of a father goes to the firstborn 
All of the world, all of the created world that we see around us belongs to Christ Jesus. That's what is in view here. Now, yeah, I'm not sure what you said, but um, the Old Testament makes it abundantly clear that the only one who is to receive worship is God himself, right? It makes it abundantly clear. It's, uh, <clears throat> to worship anything or anyone else is to commit what? Idolatry. 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 And so whether you are a human below or, or an angel above, if you are to worship anything other than God Almighty, you are responsible for committing adultery. It was, it was a big deal, a very big deal. Take a look at Exodus 34, 14. 34, 14. It says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He is jealous for His worship. Or Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to who? No other. No other. God does not share His glory. Nor my praise to carved idols. God is serious when it comes to His worship. Because anything else is idolatry. And yet, in Psalm 97.7, which is a reference to God the Father speaking of Jesus, He is commanding the angels to give worship to Him. To give worship to Him. And this is one of the clearest indicators of the divinity of Jesus. Because if God does not share His glory, if it is evil and idolatrous to worship or to offer up worship to anyone or anything but God, what does that mean of Jesus? It means that Jesus is superior to the angels because He Himself is God and deserves to be worshipped. Right? And it's important to know that the worship that the angels give to God. Now, sometimes I feel like when we're, when we're reading you know, Isaiah or we're, we're, we're uh, reading the book of Revelation, we see the angels worshiping God. Sometimes I think in my mind, we can kind of almost think of like these, these, these scary robot kind of things that are just giving worship just because they have to to God, right? That that's sometimes enters into my mind anyway. I don't know if it does into yours. But it's important to know that the worship that the angels give to God, that they give to Jesus, though it is commanded that they do so, is not like when Nebuchadnezzar ordered the people to bow down and worship a golden idol. It, it wasn't, uh, those, people, those people worshiped the idol out of just pure terror, right? Not because they, they loved the idol, but out of just terror. Because if they didn't, they'd be thrown into the furnace. But the worship that the angels give to Jesus, though they are commanded to do so, friends, it's a delight to them. It's a delight to them. They love to do it. Worshiping the Lord is not a burden to the angels, but something that causes them great joy and happiness. They know the wonders of God. They, they know the splendidness of their Creator. They know the goodness of God, and so, so they delight in worshiping Him. And so Jesus is superior to the angels because the angels themselves are made to worship Him. So as I wrap up this sermon, what kept coming to my mind again and again as I was preparing for this thing is, is the unceasing worship of the angels to Jesus. 
And I can't help but think, what would, what would my walk with Jesus be like if every waking moment that I had was spent worshiping my Creator and King? Now, how would, how would the, the Spirit use that in shaping me into His image? How much more of a, of a joyful person would I be if my mind was constantly caught up in heaven? Constantly brought to my risen Savior. Oh, but friends, how, how often am I so much more likely to grumble about the things on earth than I am to sing the praises of the one who is higher than even the angels? But even though I, I still struggle with that sinfulness, I hold on to the hope like my Hebrew brothers and sisters in Christ did long ago that the day is soon approaching in which all of my sinful grumblings, all of my discontent talk will disappear from my lips as I join all of those Christians around the bridegroom, <clears throat> as I join the church in heaven, saying this, saying, saying this is found in Revelation, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. I long for those to be the only words that escape my lips. About that day, minister and hymn writer Isaac Watts said this, and I think we have this quote too. How divinely full of glory and pleasure shall that hour be when all the millions of mankind that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God shall meet together and stand around Him with every tongue and every heart full of joy and praise. How astonishing will be the glory and the joy of that day when all the saints shall join together in one common song of gratitude and love and of everlasting thankfulness to this Redeemer. With that unknown delight and inexpressible satisfaction shall all that are saved from the ruins of sin and hell address the Lamb that was slain and rejoice in His presence. Man, friends, I long for that day. Don't you? Aren't you, aren't you tired of this world and, and, and just grumbling and, and forgetting that you have, the, you have your entire eternity to be thankful for? Isn't that amazing? You've been, you've been saved from your sin. You've been saved from, from a future, from an eternity in hell. Not because of anything that you did, but because of the grace of God. And that alone. Man. And yet we'll, we'll leave these doors and something bad will happen. Somebody will cut us off in traffic. We'll stub our toe. Whatever it is. And we will grumble and forget to be thankful. We will see all of these situations that happen around us, even though they are bad in, in evil situations, and we will still yet forget to rejoice because our salvation is secure in Christ and we have all reason to be joyful and thankful and a happy people. And as we wait for that day, when we have nothing but praise on our lips, let us follow the examples of the angels here on earth and seek to find our joy and delight, not in the things of this world, not in, not in simple pleasures that fade away, not just in, in the mud pies, as C.S. Lewis says, 
But let us find our joy and delight in worshiping our Lord Jesus. Let us seek to make that the pinnacle of our happiness. And let us lean on the Holy Spirit to help us in that. Because we need His help. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord God, I am so thankful for you. Lord, that even though, God, I have been saved, I have been redeemed, Lord, I still struggle with my flesh. There are still things that I have yet to put off. Lord, there are still aspects of, of the new self, the new man that you have given me that I still need to put on and put on daily. And so, Lord, I pray that you help me with that and that you help everyone in this room who are believers in your Son. I pray that you help them do that as well. God, you are higher than the angels. The angels were created to worship you and serve you. So, Lord, I pray that you help us follow their example. Lord, I pray that, God, the rhythm of our hearts, Lord, is the, is the rhythm of your gospel. Lord, help us serve you. Help us understand, Lord, the treasure that we have within. And Lord, just help us be joyful. God, help us be a shining light to the culture, culture around us. When, when everything is, is going wrong, Lord, when, when things in this world are just strange and people don't understand how, God, how, how they're going to survive in the next day, Lord, I pray that, that when people look at Redeemer Church, that when they look at your church, that they see a light in this world, a light of joy and rejoicing. God, because we know the end of the story. And so while we can mourn the evil atrocities that go on now, even in the tears, we can still sing your praises. We pray that you help us do that. I pray this in your son's holy and precious name.